Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, October the 10th, 2023. Uh, history has a funny way of stinging us in the tail, of waking us up, of shaking us. Uh, the end of August uh, of this year, I did a show with Yuri Kaufman, who has written a major new history of the Yom Kippur War, 18 days in October, the Yom Kippur War and how it created the modern Middle East. It was excellently reviewed, uh, featured um, uh, a work of great scholarship, uh, committed serious amount of time and energy to investigating and, and, and researching and writing about the Yom Kippur War. But it seemed like history, Yom Kippur War, was finished until this weekend where it suddenly reappeared, Yom Kippur War 2.0, it would seem, just like many people see uh, what happened in, the, in, in Israel this weekend as Israel's 9-11. So I thought it'd be a good opportunity to get Uri Kaufman back on the show, not to talk about the Yom Kippur War in itself. We've already done that show but to help us make sense of what happened at the weekend and whether or not uh, the events, the tragic events, the bloody events this weekend, and indeed this week and next week and perhaps next month and next year, reflect what we can learn and what we have learned about the Yom Kippur War. Um, Uri, when you woke up, was it on Sunday, and, and, and you read and heard about what had happened, did it immediately occur to you that this was the Yom Kippur War all over again? It certainly had uh, uh, tremendous parallels. It uh, hit me exactly the way the Yom Kippur War did when, as I mentioned on our previous show, uh, I was a nine-year-old kid running around in my dad's synagogue, and I saw you know, the grown-ups outside listening to a transistor radio, something you didn't do in an Orthodox synagogue. And I saw another group of other grown-ups screaming at them, what are you doing bringing a transistor radio into a, an Orthodox shul on Yom Kippur? And this time, it was the Jewish holiday of Shmini Atzeres. And the, the grown-ups were back outside in the lobby, and they were back talking about a war. And only this time, I was one of the grown-ups. No transistor radio this time. So yeah, it definitely brought back a lot of memories. There are a lot of strong parallels. Uh, I think what we're seeing, obviously, is tremendous surprise tremendous intelligence failure. But I think what we're really seeing is the collapse, as we did in 1973, of a number of those concepts that we talked about uh, in the previous program. You know, they say that the first casualty in war is the truth. That's not really true. Uh, actually, the, that's the, it's a close second. The first casualty of war are all the assumptions that people had before the war. So let's go over those assumptions before we get to um, October 2023. Let's talk about the Yom Kippur War. What were the assumptions that the war destroyed? The core assumption in Israel actually had a name of its own. The Israelis called it the Concepcia or the concept. The Concepcia said Syria would never go to war without Egypt. That turned out to be true. Uh, and it turned out to be true even after the war and that Egypt would never go to war until it got advanced fighter jet aircraft to contend with the Israeli Air Force. 
since those jets were not scheduled to be delivered until late 1974, the Israelis thought they had breathing room in 1973. The problem, of course, was the Israelis had their conceptia, but uh, Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, he had some conceptions of his own. He decided to go to war anyway. This is what happened in 1973, and in 19, and then rather in 2023, something very similar happened. Today, what happened at the weekend seemed to have caught many people, many non-military people like myself by surprise. We just never could have imagined that um, Hamas could have organized this mini invasion. Is that comparable to what the Arab states did at at least at the beginning of the Yom Kippur War in 1973? There are parallels. To be clear, the situation now, as horrific as it is, is nothing near as dangerous as the one in 1973. In 1973, you were talking about invasions from well-equipped armies, planes, tanks, artillery. There was a real risk of Israel being overrun. You don't have that now. There's a, a very big risk of a lot of casualties and possibly even from Hezbollah in Lebanon. There was a report just as we came on of uh, mortar fire from Syria, but make no mistake about it. The Israeli army is far more powerful than these non-state actors, and they're gonna win this war at the end of the day. There's no question. However, there are real parallels. The question, how is it Israel got caught by surprise? And again, it's all a little sketchy right now, but what seems to have happened is something very similar to what happened way back in October of 1973. The way the Egyptians fooled the Israelis was they kept mobilizing their army, bringing it to the canal, and then demobilizing, and then mobilizing and demobilizing. They did that 23 times. On the 24th time, they said, okay, attack. And only a handful of, of highest level officers knew there was going to be an attack. So how can you predict something like that? It's basically impossible. The same thing happened in Gaza, at least from what we're hearing right now. Hamas brought these thousands of fighters to train along the fence time and time and time again, each time demobilizing. On this most recent round, a few people in the know gave the order and they said, okay, now we're attacking. And so they crossed. It's pretty much impossible to predict something like that. The comparisons have also been made, and you're all too familiar with that in print and, and in television. Uh, the comparing Golda Meir and Benjamin uh, Netanyahu. Are there comparisons in political terms? Uh, Netanyahu and Meir, of course, politically are quite different. But do you think of them? Do you think that their legacies will be seen similarly? Uh, that's a good question. It's hard to say, you know, now predicting legacies. I'm of the view that Golda's legacy should place her at the very top of Israel's rankings of prime ministers. Invariably, she comes in dead last. Because of the war, right? Because of the war, despite the fact that she managed it perfectly, in my view. Once they got over the initial shock and the Agronaut Commission, which was formed after the war, absolved her completely of that surprise. Uh, and after that surprise, she managed the war perfectly. Uh, what will be with Netanyahu? I sense he's going to probably be brought down by this. I do think, though, he's going to be remembered much more fondly. He has a lot of real achievements to his name. He's a very controversial guy. Anyone who lasts that long is going to be controversial. But I do think he's going to be remembered positively in the end. Yeah, he's more than controversial. I mean, I, let, let's leave him out of it for the moment. One of the things that strikes me is, of course, many people associate the Yom Kippur War with Moshe Dayan, a, a very 
charismatic uh, Israeli uh, general, military man who was brought down by this too. It doesn't seem as if the Israeli military has those kind of charismatic individuals, or am I wrong today? Is that a difference between now and then? Totally different. You are absolutely correct. Uh, the current chief of staff of the Israeli army is a man named Herzi Halevi. He is not uh, nearly as charismatic as David Elazar, the man who commanded the Israeli army in 73. And then the defense minister, a man named Yoav Gallant, again, nowhere near the household name of a Moshe Dayan. But given the fact that the generals in 73 had won the war in 67 and no comparable war has happened in the ensuing years, uh, it would be pretty much impossible for anybody to match the kind of glory that they had. But make no mistake about it, these are very, very, very capable uh, combat officers. Yeah, and that wasn't my point. My, my yeah. point is that the, the nature of, if you like, the military-industrial complex in Israel seems to have changed over the last 50 years. Yeah, the day where they're larger than life, walk into restaurants and uh, the restaurant owner picks up the tab, uh, there's a lot of liberties that they were allowed to take in the late 60s, early 70s that would be utterly unthinkable today. Uh, Chaim Barlev was given horses to ride in one of the national parks. Uh, everyone had, had something like that. Uh, no one takes liberties like that any longer. The era where they're larger than life, that's pretty much over. Is that partly because the key failure here seems to be not so much a military failure, but an intelligence failure? It was an intelligence failure, but what it really was, was I would even call it a strategic failure. Here's what happened. Israel decided way back in 05 under Ariel Sharon to withdraw from Gaza. They dismantled every settlement. They pulled out to the 67 boundary, uh, every last granule of sand. Once they did that, they thought that they could control the situation in Gaza better from the outside than from the inside. In other words, instead of occupation, do it with deterrence. Say to the other side, if you bomb me, I will bomb you back 10 times harder. However, very important point, they didn't just control the situation with sticks, but with carrots as well. They also supplied Gaza. They supplied Gaza. Well, I looked up the most recent year, which was 2022. They sent in 5.7 billion gallons of water, 67,000 trucks filled with supplies, electricity, fuel for a power plant. And then to pay for this, they allowed almost 20,000 Palestinians to work in Israel. So what you have is the only war in the history of the world, literally, in which one side is supplying the other. It would be as if, I don't know, Germans were working in America so that America could send electricity to Germany in World War II. Of course, nothing like that would ever happen. And the thinking in Israel was, okay, we got the carrot, we got the stick. If we give them an incentive to keep things relatively quiet, yeah, they'll shoot occasionally, we'll shoot back, but more or less it's a manageable situation. And it was a manageable situation for the last 18 years. The number of dead and wounded between this regime and the occupation regime, the number of dead and wounded for Israel went down by 85%. Also, Israel saved a fortune of money. Occupation is a very, very expensive undertaking. So the thinking was, yeah, it worked. And the thinking was Hamas won't ruin that because they depend on Israel economically. What we found out is it's almost like a tail like the frog and the scorpion. Hamas didn't care, launched an invasion anyway, commit unspeakable acts. And they, it shows Hamas was laboring under some false concepcias of their own, which I could explain now. We are talking with 
Yuri Kaufman, uh, the author of a new book, 18 Days in October, The Yom Kippur War and How It Created the Modern Middle East. Uh, it was essential reading back in August when it came out. It's even more essential reading now. Uh, Uri, you, you mentioned Hamas. How equivalent can we think of Hamas in the context of the people who invaded Israel in uh, 1973, Sadat, the Syrians, and so on? Uh, ideologically, they're somewhat different. They are driven by religious fanaticism. The Egyptian army and the Syrian army were driven more by nationalism. But in truth, there's not a big difference. I mean, the ultimate war goals were the same, which is to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And so the question is, what was Hamas thinking in doing this? They have to know the Israeli army is far more powerful than they are. Bear in mind, they have no air force. They have no tanks. They have no artillery. How are they going to defeat Israel? Also, haven't they just cut off their lifeline? Israel is their economic lifeline. Without Israel, they're basically a charity case. They don't really have much of an economy. So the answer, I think- well, They're already, even with the Israeli economy, they're a charity case. Oh, absolutely. But again, in any other scenario, any country at war would say, if you want us to supply you, sign a peace treaty. What's stopping you? The argument always was, well, it's the occupation causing the problem. It's the settlements. There, were no there was no occupation in Gaza. There were no settlements. They pulled out completely. So what's stopping them? Obviously, what's stopping them is something else. And if you want to know what it was, it's a very easy way to find out. Just type in the words Jews, pigs, and monkeys, or Palestine, pigs, and monkeys in Google, and then scroll with your mouse. And you'll see any number of quotes where Hamas leaders and other Arab leaders refer to Jews as pigs and monkeys and say they want to commit genocide like Hitler. That's what they're basically fighting for. So, you know, the reason that they did what they did is the leader of Gaza today is a, there's no polite way to say this, he's a mass murdering psychopath. His name is Yechia Sinwar. He was convicted in an Israeli court of murdering six people, two with his bare hands. He was given six consecutive life sentences. Israeli prosecutors said he was involved in the murders of over 20 other people, but they figured once they had six consecutive life sentences, it was enough. The reason he is now the head of Gaza and not sitting in an Israeli jail, is that he was traded in a uh, lopsided prisoner swap where Israel got back a corporal named Gilad Shalit and freed 1,027 terrorists. And so what Yechia Sinwar probably said to himself is, well, when we only had one person captured, Gilad Shalit, they freed 1,027 terrorists. Well, now that we're holding 130 hostages, they'll let us do whatever we want. They won't fight back. Uh, he made a very, very, very bad miscalculation in thinking. If that was his thinking, it was a mistake for the ages. I want to talk about the current hostage situation, which may come to define what happened at the weekend. Uh, but the thing that's dominating American press, of course, is what the New York Times called a massacre, the massacre of Israelis. Had the Syrian or, or the Egyptian armies, had they occupied Israel, would they, in your view, and, and I know, I'm not sure I, I share your politics, you certainly come from a more conservative position here, do you think that they would have massacred all the Jews or just thrown them out? What would have happened? Well, I'm not sure what the difference is. Uh, I don't know how you throw well, There's out. a big difference between chopping them up and asking them to leave or well, just guess. putting them on ships and sending them somewhere else. Well, what if there's nowhere else to go? I mean, that wasn't like there was another country waiting to take in over 3 million Jews. So, you know, what do you do when that happens? 
Uh, you know, the Nazis also initially tried to kick out the Jews, but no one would take Well, them. are you suggesting that the Egyptians and the Syrians in 73, that they were equivalent to the Nazis? I think they could have been if they had broken through. The answer is yes. And there were any number of instances, many as a matter of fact, in which Syrians massacred prisoners of war. The Egyptians did the same. In fact, I mentioned Gilad Shalit a moment ago. His uncle, by coincidence, was in a technical unit in the October 73 war, repairing tanks, things like that. He was captured with about 12 other men. They butchered them. They murdered them and they mutilated their bodies. So yeah, do I think that was going to happen? It could have happened. Absolutely. Aren't there war crimes though on both sides? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, and you know more about this than I do, although Again, I, I'm assuming you're a little biased here, Uri, that, that, that the Israelis were also guilty of, of crimes? No, they're not guilty of any crimes whatsoever. In the war, none? Which war are we talking about? We're about 73 or now? 73. So in 73, yes. There were, I, I wrote about it in the book. There were a few instances in which in Sinai, um, there was uh, an Israeli reporter who was captured by the Egyptians a combat reporter, and he was executed. And the soldiers uncovered this, and they got really mad. And the next day, they executed 20 Egyptian POWs. They got away with it. They would have been prosecuted if they'd have been caught. They got away with it. Uh, they revealed it many, many, many years later after the statute of limitations had passed. Uh, there were some instances of, you know, uh, there was one soldier who put out a cigarette in a Syrian POW. He got into trouble. The difference is in Israel, you get prosecuted for this sort of thing. So it sometimes happens, but it certainly doesn't happen in a kind of systemic way. And that's a distinction that the so-called human rights community always misses. There's a huge, huge difference between an individual soldier who commits a crime and gets prosecuted for it and an army that does it in a systemic way. International law only requires an army to prosecute people that do that. And of course, it happens in every army, the American army, the British army. Uh, but if you prosecute it, you do keep it to a bare, bare minimum. Those are the requirements of international law. It doesn't happen in a systemic way in the way that it happens in the Arab countries, sadly. And it does me no joy to say this, by the way, but that's just the cold, hard reality. We're speaking with Eric Kaufman, the author of 18 Days in October, the Yom Kippur War and how it created the modern Middle East, uh, an essential read six weeks ago, even more essential now. Um, Uri, you talked about an army. Can we call Hamas an army? And when Netanyahu immediately declared war, did, did that make sense in, in your mind? Can one declare war against an army of what many people see as terrorists? So it's look, if, if they're terrorists, that's worse. That's not better. It doesn't make it somehow better. So you could handle it in a military court or you could handle it in a civilian court. How would one define the word army? Uh, were the Nazis an army? They were an army. They were an army that commit hor horrific crimes. I would say that about the Hamas terrorists because at least, and this is very preliminary, and a lot of this is going to out, but just based on what we're seeing so far, they did seem to be wearing uniforms. Now, again, as an army wearing uniforms committing those kinds of crimes, they would be the equivalent of the Einsatzgruppen of the German army that went in and probably, as a matter of fact, massacred my extended family at, at the grandfather level back uh, in places like Poland and Ukraine in 1939. It's called the Holocaust of Bullets. The difference, of course, is the Nazis, again, had the good sense to cover it up. Uh, Hamas is posting it 
uh, on Facebook. One of the things that occurs to me, Uri, is that we now call uh, the war that you wrote about, the Yom Kippur War, although some people, I'm guessing people outside Israel call it the Ramadan War. We still don't have a name for what happened at the weekend, do we? We don't have a name yet. It, there's a good chance it's going to be called the Simchat Torah War because it was on that Jewish holiday. Um, they might call it the Hamas War. I don't know. There actually is a committee that has the task of naming wars. There actually is such a thing. So again, we're still pretty early in the crisis. It's likely to go on for a couple of weeks. Uh, it'll be named. My guess is it's going to be called the Simchat Torah War. You studied 1973, the Yom Kippur War, but of course what happened at the end of the 70s was the hostage crisis in Iran. Are there equivalents now to what's happening? Because increasingly it's no longer a, a military conflict. It's a conflict over hostages. Can, is, is, is 1979 now the year that we might look to in terms of this bizarre hostage crisis that's unfolding? No, I, I don't view this as a hostage crisis. This is much more than that. This is a, a full-blown massacre where the, the people perpetrating the massacre hoped that if they gathered up enough hostages, maybe they could stave off an invasion. That was the core strategy. They are about to find out that this was the miscalculation of the ages. When you have one hostage, Gilad Shalit, you have a hostage. When you have 130 hostages, you have a statistic. The Israelis are totally unmoved so far from what I can tell. I will tell you, I've been monitoring Israeli media for decades. I have never seen the level of anger that we're seeing right now on Israeli TV. There is complete support for a very, very massive and harsh campaign in Gaza. There is a sense that Hamas has to go. The old rules are finished. Gaza is probably going to become some sort of a ward of the international community. The people who live there are going to be living on charity much like the people in Idlib in northwestern Syria, basically just live on charity. There's no economy there. It's going to be something similar to that. But the old rules, they're finished. Hamas commit an act of national suicide. Yesterday, I had Jason Pack on the show, a friend of mine. He has a, a new podcast out, Disorder. He was cautiously optimistic that this event could result, could trigger a new round of peace negotiations. He was hopeful that the Biden regime would take advantage of the situation to bring players to the table, the Saudis in particular, and the Qataris perhaps. Do you share his cautious optimism? Absolutely not. There will be no peace between Israel and the Palestinians anytime soon. Certainly, almost certainly not in my lifetime. I'm 59. I don't see a scenario where that happens. Now, the good news is I do still think there's going to be a deal with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman made it clear in his interview with Brett Baer on Fox that he doesn't really care about the Palestinians. He's got bigger fish to fry. When asked about the Palestinians, he said his goal is to ease their lives. That's a quote. He did not mention any of the, I call the Holy Trinity, that was always mentioned in every interview in the past, which is 67 Boundaries. East Jerusalem and Palestinian refugees. He didn't mention any of those things. Essentially, he said he just wants to give them a little bit of money. And with good reason. He can't afford to worry about Palestinians. He's got much, much bigger issues on his table. I suspect that the deal is still going to happen. It's going to make it much more difficult for people in Washington 
to somehow condition it on concessions to the Palestinians. So in that sense, I think it's going to make peace more likely, again, between Israel and Saudi Arabia, but between Israel and the Palestinians, no, that's just not going to happen anytime soon. I want to thank our sponsor, Liberties Quarterly, for uh, allowing us to put this show on. It's a wonderful journal of culture and politics. I'm going to run a short ad, and then I want to talk more specifically about America's response and the equivalence between Joe Biden today and the American uh, president back in 73. So we'll be back with Uri Kaufman talking about similarities and differences between the Yom Kippur War and what he calls the Simcha Torah War of uh, or October 2023. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Uri Kaufman, the author of 18 Days in October, The Yom Kippur War and How It Created the Modern Middle East, a central reading for anyone who cares about the region. Uh, Uri, we, you, you, you touched on uh, the U.S. Uh, before the break. Um, Joe Biden made a speech today uh, unambiguously condemning the attacks, describing it as terrorism. Uh, how would you compare the American response so far in this Simcha Torah war with the original response in 73? I think it's fantastic. I think he's been really uh, everything anyone in Israel could have hoped for. In uh, It really shows how far Israel has come in the last 50 years. 50 years ago, Israel was viewed as a burden, as a charity case. The Democrats were sort of supportive. The Republicans were not supportive at all. It took a while to bring Nixon around. Uh, and nowadays, um, Israel doesn't get quite the support from the Democrats that I feel it should, but still gets a good deal of support. But on the Republican side, it now gets overwhelming support. And what it speaks to is this notion that Israel is now a real ally, an important ally. It's a rising technical and industrial power. It is a power in many, many areas of technology. It is a very important ally in war on terror, in cyber warfare, and so forth. And so the American response has been very, very, very heartening. Is Biden's unambiguous tone, acknowledgement, recognition that he has no interest, certainly in this current administration, maybe even if he's re-elected in pushing for some sort of peace, some sort of negotiated peace? I think he's, put, he's doing the right thing. He's pushing for peace where peace can be obtained, which is between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And if they get the deal done, and I think they probably will, right after that will probably be Oman. And then right after there was talk of peace between Israel and the Tripoli half of the Libyan government, now it's basically two countries, uh, there are two tiny countries in the Arab League, Comoros Island and Djibouti. Good chance they would sign on. If all these countries sign on, you now have a majority of the Arab League recognizing Israel and uh, having peace with it and diplomatic relations, what we've always wanted. There's a few other good candidates. There's Mauritania. Uh, there's a theoretical possibility for an Algeria or a Tunisia, although that would be much, much less likely. You mentioned Qatar. I'm much more skeptical that Qatar would do it. 
They actually did have good relations with Israel in the 1990s, but since that time, they've drifted much more closely to Iran. What it really looks like is either you're with Saudi Arabia or you're with Iran. And if you're with Saudi Arabia, you're, you're probably going to have a peace treaty with Israel. And if you're with Iran, you won't, whether the Palestinians do or not. So the Biden administration, I think, is doing exactly what they should. Again, a peace process with the Palestinians, I just don't see that happening. Did the aftermath of the Yom Kippur War, did it create a, a similar two-camp world? Certainly, it was before the Iranian Revolution, so Iran wasn't a central player. Uh, but what about the other great powers or regional powers uh, in the neighborhood? The, it did. Well, it always there was a big superpower rivalry there, but Anwar Sadat essentially abandoned the Soviets in a way that was pretty outrageous. First of all, uh, the Soviets lost an investment of tens of billions of dollars in Egypt, and he just picked up and crossed over to the American side. It was a huge victory in the Cold War, a huge victory for Henry Kissinger. And it was a tremendous humiliation for the Soviets. They were absolutely apoplectic uh, about it. The Syrians weren't happy about it either. So it did that. But now we really are in a, in a unipolar world. Uh, there's America. To some degree, one can stand with China, with Russia, with Iran a little bit. But it's pretty much still a unipolar world, I think. Do you believe that Israel has a moral responsibility when it comes to the Gaza Strip? To the people who live there, the women and children? Does America have a responsibility to what's going on in Afghanistan? Uh, well, no, the answer that, I, that, that, that wasn't an answer. Uh, oh, it's all answered. The answer is, is, is unequivocal. No, of course not. Once they withdrew, when you are an occupier under the Geneva Convention, yes, you assume responsibility for the health and well-being of the civilian population. And Israel did that admirably because by every... A statistical measure, the lives of the Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank improved dramatically after 1967. However, once you pull out, once you withdraw, you give up that responsibility. Israel is literally the only country in the history of the world that people are looking to to continue that responsibility, even though they've pulled out. And there's something wrong with that. I don't, I mean, it didn't matter until now because the Israelis themselves were willing to do it, again, in this kind of carrot stick policy to try to control Gaza as best they could. Now that that's finished, I suspect the Israelis are going to say, we're not supplying them any longer. Why should we? And I don't see where they have any responsibility to them whatsoever. What about the International Court of Public Opinion? If this war goes on, which it clearly will do, if, as you suggest, Gaza is essentially closed down as an independent place with an economy and it becomes a kind of ward of the international community. If thousands, maybe even if tens of thousands of people die in this war, at what point should Israel be careful about the court of public opinion, which it isn't doing particularly well in in certain communities even today, even after the outrages of the weekend? So that's obviously the big question. What Everyone right now is standing with Israel. What are they going to say when a bomb misses the target, hits a building and kills 100 people? You're absolutely right. Probably there'll be some sort of an outcry. My sense is the Israelis this time aren't going to care. They're going to keep going. They're going to keep going until Hamas is gone. A bellwether, if you're following this carefully, is watch an Israeli politician named Avigdor Lieberman. He's in the opposition now. He has long argued for going into Gaza and taking out Hamas. 
Prime Minister Netanyahu has called for a national unity government. Victor Lieberman said he would join that government, but only if they were committed to taking out Hamas. If he joins the government, that'll mean pretty much they've made the decision. It's all over. They're going all out. They'll take the criticism. Uh, they'll deal with the outcry, and they're just going to do what they have to do, which is frankly what I think they should do. What about the impact on the West Bank? There are already calls, certainly within Gaza, within Hamas, for uh, a, a, a similar response on the West Bank. What's your take on the Palestinian response on the West Bank? Is there, is there daylight, sunlight between uh, the Palestinians on the West Bank and on in the Gaza? There long has been. And the reason there has been is that Gaza was run by Hamas. West Bank was run by Abu Mazen and Fatah. Fatah always worked with Israel because that's the only reason they were able to stay in power. They are very, very unpopular. They're corrupt. Whatever kind of opinion polling we have there shows that Hamas outpolls uh, Fatah in the West Bank by about 80% to 20%. This is why Abu Mazen is in the 19th year of his four-year term. He won't call other elections. If he did, he knows, if he does, he knows to lose. So they have an interest to kind of tamp things down. What will happen, nobody knows. I can tell you that I've spoken to people in Israel and they're all being told to stock up on the groceries, make sure they have at least 72 hours of supplies because there's a real fear that the Arabs in the West Bank are going to join this and then it's just going to be an all-out war. I certainly hope it doesn't happen. If it does, uh, the Arabs in the West Bank will pay a terrible price. Your book is, the subtitle of the book is um, How It Created the Modern Middle East. But did it create the modern Arab Middle East? How did the Yom Kippur War change the Arab Middle East? Well, realign politics completely. For a while, Egypt was out of the Arab League even. The most important Arab country was not part of the Arab League because simply because they signed a peace treaty with Israel. What it did was, though, it changed all the politics. Israel finally could at least hope to sign peace treaties with other Arab countries. It's no longer the Zionist entity. It's a country where actually some of the Arab countries are, have warm relations. The United Arab Emirates, for example, has over $2 billion of trade. Uh, Bahrain has close relations with Israel. Morocco now does. Sudan somewhat less. We're finally seeing uh, daylight, uh, a way where in the future there really could be a good relationship between Israel and at least that part of the Arab world that's not aligned with Iran. This was another thing that uh, Mohammed bin Salman said in his interview with Fox, that they are now building their future economy on tourism. They've seen the success that Dubai has experienced with that. And they look at Israel as a potential market. Israel's very close to Saudi Arabia. Israelis love to travel. There is a 60 mile shoreline along the Red Sea, which is, I've never been there myself. I'm told it's beautiful. It's fabulous for snorkeling and diving. It's got lots of islands and corals. And the Saudis are hoping that the Israelis come. So. Uh, the peace treaty with Egypt really did change everything. It opened the door for a better future. And what about the politics within Israel? Many, many commentators have suggested that the divisions in Israel, uh, you poo-pooed the idea of a civil war brewing in Israel when we talked, but there are certainly divisions, even you would acknowledge that, over the Supreme Court. Is this the moment where those divisions become more profound, more dangerous, or will... Israel come together because of this outrage? This is the moment where those divisions become completely forgotten and everyone has come together and no one is talking about 
you know, legal reform to the Supreme Court or any of that stuff. It's all gone. Everybody's together. And everybody who followed this always thought this and said this. Yes, there's a big, sharp disagreement. But when they were in the midst of those disagreements, there was no violence. Nobody was getting killed. Nobody was getting wounded. Uh, it was a political debate, a very sharp one. But the sort of thing that happens in every democracy every five or 10 years. You got this emotional issue. People are out in the streets. But again, no violence. Everyone is still together. And everyone always said, if there's a crisis, we'll all come together. And that's exactly what's happening. And what about the potential for war with Iran? That's a real risk. That could definitely happen. I think it's still less than 50%, a lot less than 50%. Iran doesn't want it. Israel doesn't want it. The problem is you've got an inherently unstable situation. And you just don't know one thing leads to another, leads to another. Someone fires a bomb. They hope it lands on one kind of target. It lands on a different target. And before you know it, you've got everybody in a free-for-all. Uh, I don't think that'll happen, but there is that possibility. And final question, Eri. Um, is it in any way conceivable that this will change the politics of the Palestinian people? Will some younger Palestinians, for example, recognize that this was an insane thing to do, not just for moral reasons, but for practical consequences? It's possible but I would say it's extremely unlikely because they have been losing war after war after war for a century. And all it seems to do is make them more radical. It's almost like if we just become a little more radical, then ne next time it's going to work. If you look, you've had a war like this every eight to 10 years going all the way back to 1920. And each time they drew all the wrong conclusions. So what can I tell you? I'm a historian. I try to learn from the, uh, lessons of the past, the past does not uh, offer one much room for optimism. Could there be peace, though, if, if, if the Palestinians rose as a people and say what Hamas did was ridiculous, immoral, it's not that they didn't act in our name, and we finally want to come to the table and learn and figure this thing out? Is there a peace still in the Middle East, in Israel, Palestine, whatever you want to call it, Gaza Strip, West Bank? I would say the answer is the chances are very, very, very small. These are religious fanatics. These are the hardest people to convince of anything. These are deeply held beliefs. If they want to sign a peace treaty, there's nothing stopping them. We've been told so many times in so many forums, the problem is the occupation. The problem is the settlements. Well, guess what? In Gaza, there was no occupation and there were no settlements. So there's nothing preventing them. If they want to sign a peace treaty, they could just sign a peace treaty. Israel did everything they could to accommodate them, short of giving them ammunition. So here we are. Uh, are they now going to finally wake up and say, wait a minute, maybe this is a mistake? I don't have any reason to believe why that would happen. I certainly hope it would happen. It would be great if there was some Palestinian Nelson Mandela out there. But I can't even name that guy on the horizon, the young, smart, uh, Harvard-educated lawyer who's uh, rallying people to a different future. I don't know who that person even is anymore.